Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now here's Pastor Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. It's a blessing to study God's Word with you. It's a sobering thought that one day all of us will utter our final words. As a pastor, I've been present a number of times at the final hour of someone's life. Most oftentimes, people's last words have consisted of telling their spouse and family how much they love them. One of the things I've learned through those experiences is this. A person pretty much dies as they lived. Though there are definite exceptions, people who have trusted Christ for salvation, receiving the peace of God and the hope of heaven, tend to pass away peaceably. And the people who have no such hope may oftentimes struggle as their life slips away. When actress Joan Crawford was passing away, she heard her housekeeper praying out loud for her. And so her final words before dying were to curse out that housekeeper and say, don't you dare ask God to help me. In contrast, John Wesley's final words were, the best of all is that God is with us. And he spoke those words twice as he passed away. Here in our series through Mark's Gospel, we're looking at the crucifixion of Christ and his seven statements from the cross. These are Christ's final words before his death, though after his resurrection, the risen Lord still had many things to say. Of his seven statements, only one is recorded here in Mark, so we're going to use all four Gospels in this message to collect all of those final words. Matthew and Mark record one statement each, while Luke and John include three each. Jesus spoke seven times, and altogether it adds up to little more than 50 words. Not a word too many, and not a word too few. The number seven in Scripture is the number of perfection. Therefore, the seven statements of Jesus from the cross were his perfect and complete message of love and grace. And our message title then is Grace from Golgotha. When Jesus had spoken to the woman at the well, recorded in John 4, he spoke seven statements to her, and the end result was she was converted. Here at Calvary, Jesus spoke seven statements as he laid down his life to provide salvation for anyone who was willing to believe. And sure enough, salvation came to one of the two criminals crucified next to him, as well as the Roman centurion overseeing the crucifixion. I'd like for us to look at these seven statements of Jesus in the order that he spoke them. In Luke 23, the first statement of Christ from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And let's identify that as a word of forgiveness. The first words of Jesus from the cross were a prayer to the Father, as were his fourth and seventh statements. Jesus not only taught his disciples how to pray, he taught them and us to love and forgive our enemies. Here on the cross, Jesus showed us what grace and forgiveness looks like. Earlier, I had made a reference to John Wesley, and the story goes that at one point he was in Georgia pleading on behalf of a guilty man before the governor of the colony, and he was asking for leniency. 
However, that governor sternly denied Wesley, saying, I never forgive and I never forget. To which Wesley replied, Then, sir, let us hope that you never sin. Jesus asked the Father to forgive all who had harmed him. He was asking forgiveness for those malicious religious leaders, for the soldiers who had whipped him, mocked him, and nailed him to the cross, as well as for the hostile crowd and for the two criminals crucified on either side of him who were also mocking him. When Jesus said, for they know not what they do, he was not saying that they were innocent. In fact, they were guilty, and that's precisely why they needed forgiveness. So when Jesus prayed for forgiveness instead and said, for they know not what they do, he was saying that they were unaware of the full extent of their actions. They were not innocent, but in many ways they were ignorant. They didn't believe or understand that Jesus was God incarnate. For if they had actually believed, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory, as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 2.8. But as we read in John 3:17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus was on a mission of mercy, and his first words of grace from the cross were a prayer to the Father asking for forgiveness of others. And that prayer was answered a short time later when one of the two criminals crucified next to Jesus cried out by faith, acknowledging his sins, and asking Jesus for salvation. That prompted the second statement of Jesus when he said to that criminal, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's also recorded in Luke 23, and we'll call that a word of salvation. Jesus was hanging on the cross intended for Barabbas, who had been set free by Pilate, and the two convicts hanging next to Jesus were the criminal cohorts of Barabbas. In the first hour of the crucifixion, that man had mocked and blasphemed Jesus just like everyone else was doing. But then something dramatically changed with that convicted criminal hanging next to Jesus. Some critics call it a contradiction, but the Gospels clearly describe it as a conversion. His guilt is seen by the fact that he's facing the death of the cross. But then miracle of miracles, his blasphemy was turned into silence then into repentance, and then into a plea for salvation. That career criminal was touched by the fact that Jesus was praying for his abusers. That man was also facing the reality of his own imminent death on the cross. You know, after I became a Christian, I made several gentle attempts to share the gospel with my unsaved father. He was a wonderful man, and he was loved by everyone, but he was also a lost sinner. And every time I shared with him, he dismissed it all, not in a mean manner, but he simply dismissed it. Then later on in his life, he was diagnosed with lung cancer and given just a few weeks to live. When I picked him up from the hospital right after his diagnosis, we sat in the car together for a few moments. And I said to him, Dad, you know what the doctor has said, and you only have a few weeks to live. Then I shared the gospel with him once again, and we ended up praying together right then and there in the car. The unsaved will oftentimes dismiss the reality of eternity until that moment when they stand at death's door facing the reality of eternity. I'm forever grateful that my father still had the chance to receive Christ by faith, not unlike the criminal that we're reading about here on the cross. 
Therefore, we see a clear picture of divine grace along with the assurance of salvation in this conversion. We see divine grace because this man had no good works, no water baptism, really no chance of any kind to make anything good out of his life. He was a lost and hopeless sinner crying out to the Savior. Salvation is only by God's grace, and it is God's gift. Then Jesus gave him the assurance of salvation, telling him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gave him immediate and unconditional forgiveness along with assurance. Jesus can transfer or transform, I should say, the most rotten sinner into the most righteous saint. Someone once asked Mel Trotter, who had been a hopeless alcoholic prior to his conversion, how do you know that you really are a Christian? Trotter replied, because I was there when it happened. (laughs) As it was with my dad, this conversion also demonstrates the grace of what many often refer to as a deathbed conversion. Even with their final breath, a sinner can still come to repentance. But the other side of that coin is that deathbed conversions are rare, simply because people's hearts have become so hardened. A street preacher was sharing the gospel one day, warning people about the dangers of postponing a decision for Christ. Suddenly, a man in the crowd blurted out, Hey, preacher, don't forget about the thief on the cross. To which the preacher wisely replied, And which thief on the cross would that be? Yes, one criminal was saved in the last hour of his life, but don't forget the other criminal was like the majority of unsaved people, dying as he had lived. In fact, it's worth noting that this is the only deathbed conversion recorded in the Bible. As D.L. Moody noted, there is just one case of deathbed conversion in the Bible, just one, one so that none might despair, and only one so that none might presume. Well, this brings us to the third statement of Jesus from the cross recorded in John 19, when he looked down upon his mother, Mary, and said to her, woman, behold your son. And then to his disciple, John, he said, behold your mother. This then was a word of provision. Imagine even in the midst of his unbearable suffering and pain, where it was was difficult just to even breathe. Jesus was making caring provision for his beloved mother. He entrusted her care to John, who was the only disciple there at the cross. Notice that Jesus didn't entrust her care to any of his half-brothers, because none of them were saved at that point, and there's no indication that any of them were even there at the crucifixion. We should note that even at this tender moment, Jesus addressed his mother as woman. In fact, nowhere in the Gospels did Jesus ever call her mother. It certainly wasn't out of disrespect or a lack of love, and the fact that Jesus was seeing to her needs here and her care at this final moment demonstrates his love for her. The term woman in the Greek that he used is a very warm and respectful term. However, it underscores the fact that more than she being his mother, he was her savior. Mary was a brave, virtuous, and faithful woman of God, but she should not be revered or elevated beyond that. She is certainly not to be worshipped or prayed to. At one point in the ministry of Jesus, a woman in the crowd called out to him and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you. 
To which Jesus immediately replied, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary's faithfulness is to be appreciated and admired, but she should never be put on a heavenly pedestal. After the crucifixion and ascension, we know that Mary was there with the believers in Jerusalem in Acts 1.14. But you know, after that, we don't read anything further about her in the New Testament. Many biblical scholars believe that she lived out the remainder of her life under the care of John. The strongest traditions have her dying and being buried in either Jerusalem or maybe more likely in Ephesus where John lived. Chronologically then, those first three statements of Jesus took place in the morning hours between 9 and noon. That brings us now to our verses here in Mark 15 where we read this in verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, this is noontime, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour or three in the afternoon. The daylight was suddenly and dramatically turned into darkness. Some have suggested that an eclipse took place. Others have proposed that this was some sort of satanic darkness. However, this was clearly God's doing. Warren Wiersbe reminds us that this was Passover, And listen, going all the way back to the very first Passover in Egypt, the ninth plague from God was three days of darkness over the whole land, followed by the death of the firstborn. Here now at this Passover, there is three hours of darkness over the whole land, followed by the death of God's firstborn and only son. What an amazing parallel that is. One commonly asked question about this darkness is whether it took place in the land of Israel only or around the whole world. The wording in verse 33, over the whole land, could refer just to Israel or to the entire world. The Greek word for land is used elsewhere to describe both the earth and just certain regions, so that none of that helps us. It is worth noting that Luke 23:45 describes it as the sun being darkened. But again, does that mean that the sunlight over Israel was darkened or that the sun itself was darkened? A couple of early church writers believed that this darkness extended beyond the borders of Israel, but the bottom line is we simply don't know. One interesting thought is that Jesus was dying for the sins of the whole world, which might suggest that the supernatural darkness took place over the whole world. On the other hand, all of the other miracles surrounding the cross were limited to that particular area, and that might also include the supernatural darkness. Most importantly is what the darkness represented, which was judgment, God's judgment coming upon his son. It was during those three hours of darkness that Jesus experienced the full divine wrath for our sins. Amazing that Jesus accomplished in three hours what lost sinners will never accomplish for eternity in the lake of fire, a full punishment for our sins. It was during the latter part of this darkness then that Jesus uttered his fourth statement from the cross, recorded in verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That statement is recorded in Psalm 22.1 and is a messianic prophecy of the words that Jesus would speak on the cross hundreds of years later. But more than fulfilled prophecy, this was Jesus suffering and dying for sin. And so let's call this a word of suffering. This then is the true essence of the cross, Jesus suffering and dying 
to atone for our sins. Listen, please. On the cross, God was punishing Jesus as if he had actually committed every sin ever committed. And he did that so he could treat every person who believes by faith as if we had lived the perfect and righteous life of Jesus. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was our substitute and our sacrifice, and if we believe in him by faith, he is our Savior. I think we'd all agree that this is the most mystifying and mysterious of Christ's seven statements. The story is told of the time when Martin Luther sat in his study poring over these words. Hour after hour, Luther sat there praying and pondering. Food was brought to him, but he refused to eat, and it was said that he meditated on those words like a man in a deep trance. Finally, Luther stood up and declared, God forsaken by God? Who can understand such a thing? I think we all appreciate Luther's bewilderment. Spurgeon called this the saddest cry from the cross. It's significant that this is the only one of the seven statements of Christ from the cross that is recorded by more than one gospel writer, both Matthew and Mark. And then don't forget, it's also recorded in Psalm 22, verse 1. In the simplest terms, Jesus was receiving the full divine wrath of God for our sins. And along with the sufferings of hell itself, it included a temporary separation between the Son and the Father. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. It had never happened before in all of eternity past and will never happen again in all of eternity future. This cry of Jesus then reveals the worst part of eternal suffering and agony, the absence of God. Hell and the lake of fire are not just eternal punishment. Listen, it's eternal punishment with no hope of divine comfort or divine compassion, or divine rescue. It's the absolute absence of hope. Also notice how Jesus, for the only time in the whole New Testament, calls him God rather than Father. My God, my God. It sheds further light on the separation and the abandonment that Jesus experienced on the cross in order to save us. I appreciate G. Campbell Morgan's words when he said, I do not know what happened in the darkness, but this I know. He saved not himself, but he saved me, and out of the darkness has come a light. And just as unsaved people today do not understand the love or the grace or the meaning of what took place on the cross in those dark hours, notice here in verse 35, when some of those standing nearby thought that Jesus was crying out for Elijah. The foolish response of others was to reply, saying, Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Some have suggested they were actually taunting Jesus at that time because he had claimed to be the Messiah. And since Scripture tells us that Elijah is prophesied to arrive uh, just before the Messiah, that they were mocking him and calling out for Elijah. As we read in verse 34, this cry of Jesus to the Father took place in the ninth hour or during the final hour of Christ's crucifixion at three in the afternoon. Therefore, while the first three statements of Jesus were all spoken in the earlier morning hours of the crucifixion, the last four statements of Jesus all took place in rapid succession 
towards the very end of those six hours. The fifth statement of Jesus then soon afterwards is when he said, I thirst. That's recorded in John 19.28, and it's a word of misery or anguish. His words, my God, my God, highlighted his divine suffering, while the words, I thirst, highlighted his physical suffering. You know, Jesus was and forever remains the God-man. He's both deity and humanity. This statement was also a messianic, uh, messianic prophecy recorded in Psalm 69:21. Remarkable to think that Jesus, who created every ocean, river, and lake, was hanging on the cross saying, I thirst. It's worth noting that this is one of only two times that Jesus asked someone for something to drink. The other occasion was at the well in Samaria when he said to that woman, give me a drink. Jesus asked her for a drink so he could engage her in a conversation about the living waters of eternal life. Here on the cross then, Jesus is suffering the thirst of all hell in order to make possible that living water that he offered to that Samaritan woman. Jesus suffered the most severe form of thirst so that you and I would never thirst again. In fact, the final invitation in the Bible recorded in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, is, Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the waters of life freely. John's gospel then gives us his sixth statement, which is when Jesus said, it is finished. This then was a word of victory. Those three words, it is finished, come from a single Greek word, tetelestai. The life of Jesus seemed to have been finished, but he would rise again on Sunday morning. So what was actually finished then was the work that the Father had given him to do. What was finished was a redemption for lost mankind. What was supposed to be finished was the Old Testament religious system. What was finished was the bondage of Satan. And what was finished was the suffering of our Savior. Tetelestai can also be translated as paid in full. And the full price for our sins had been paid by the suffering and death of Jesus. Finally then, his seventh statement from the cross was in calling out to the Father again, this time saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's also recorded in Luke 23. It's a word of fulfillment. Jesus had fulfilled and completed the work that the Father had sent him to do. Here we read in verse 37 that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. As Jesus had declared earlier in his ministry, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. So when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, it was a deliberate act of his sovereign will. He yielded up his spirit and gave his life to his father. Then we read in verse 38, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, that centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were several miracles that coincided with the death of Jesus on the cross, and we'll look at those in our next podcast message along with the burial of Jesus. But here now in verse 38 is the second conversion that resulted from the crucifixion of Christ. The first, again, was that criminal hanging next to Jesus, and now it's the Roman centurion overseeing the crucifixion. A Roman centurion was a commander over a hundred soldiers. Three of the Gospels reference this centurion, and yet we actually know very little about him. 
We don't know his name or his age or even whether he was married or if he had a family. But what we do know is that he was the centurion who oversaw the crucifixion. Centurions were soldiers of war first, but then when there was no conflict or combat taking place, they were responsible for carrying out capital punishment. Roman citizens were executed by the sword, while non-Roman citizens were crucified. So, for example, when the Apostle Paul was executed as a Roman citizen, he was beheaded by the sword, while the Apostle Peter, a non-Roman citizen, was crucified. The first time this particular centurion encountered Christ probably took place when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. According to John's gospel, the, the group that came with Judas Iscariot and arrested Jesus included a detachment of troops, referring to Roman soldiers. This centurion was the commander stationed there at the Praetorium in Jerusalem. After the arrest, while the Roman governor Pilate was questioning Jesus, this centurion would have been standing by close at hand. When Pilate stood before the Passover crowd on Friday morning and offered the people a choice between releasing Jesus or Barabbas, that centurion was standing by with his soldiers making sure that the crowd did not get out of hand. Then in the early morning hours of Friday, this centurion received his orders from Pilate to have Jesus scourged and then crucified. Afterwards, the squad of soldiers led by that centurion escorted Jesus to Golgotha. During the scourging and the mockery, the centurion would have noticed that this man, Jesus, did not react or respond like all the other men. He simply bore it all. There at the cross, he refused the sedative to help deaden his pain. It's a well-documented fact that prisoners being crucified would typically shout and scream and curse and spit and lash out at the crowd as well as at the soldiers. The centurion carefully watched as Jesus did none of those things. In fact, he did the complete opposite. The centurion heard Jesus praying to God and asking him to forgive everyone. The centurion could hardly believe his ears when he heard Jesus offering pardon and paradise to the repentant thief crucified next to him. Then the centurion listened carefully as Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to his disciple John. Finally, at the moment of Christ's death, the centurion made a statement and confession of faith. It was a remarkable thing for him to say this publicly as it could have gotten him into plenty of trouble with both the Jews and the Romans. But he didn't care. Something had moved his heart profoundly. Some have tried to suggest that he simply got swept up in the emotions of the circumstances, but I don't know that anybody really believes that. Everything indicates otherwise. In all his years and experiences, this centurion had never encountered anyone or anything like this. And remember, he was a seasoned soldier who had fought in many conflicts, an experienced centurion responsible for overseeing hundreds of crucifixions. This was not a man given over to his emotions. He had learned to bury his feelings a long time ago. His heart was hardened. Therefore, it would require something spectacular and truly supernatural to move the calloused heart of a man like this to publicly confess Christ in this way. But, as John Phillips observed, never before had this centurion seen such majesty in the face of such misery, 
such calmness in the face of such cruelty, and such patience in the face of such persecution. The centurion's use of the word truly means without a doubt, and it reveals a certainty and conviction that speaks of genuine belief. The centurion didn't cry out, truly this was an unusual prisoner, or truly this was a great prophet. This centurion cried out, truly this man was the son of God. In his gospel, Luke adds that the same centurion glorified God, and it literally means that he kept on glorifying God. And so then, there were two converts at Calvary on that first Good Friday. First, there was the thief hanging next to Jesus, and then there was the Roman centurion. The first convert was the man who cursed Jesus, and the second convert was the man who crucified Jesus. That criminal hanging next to Jesus was a Jew, being part of the larger insurrection movement to overthrow the rule of Rome. But that centurion was a Roman soldier and a Gentile. The Jewish criminal came to faith first, and then the Gentile. A beautiful picture there at Calvary of how salvation is for the Jew first, and then also for the Gentile. A Jewish rebel and a Gentile soldier with nothing in common except that both of them were hopeless sinners who are now in heaven with Jesus. It truly was grace from Golgotha. In Jesus' name, amen. <music> 